All right, we are in chapter 13. The Holy Spirit has separated uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work that he has called them to. Um, they left as the Holy Spirit set them aside. They went to Cyprus, if you guys remember, from Antioch in Syria to Cyprus. And then whatever amount of time they spent there, I'll do it on both sides so nobody feels left out. Antioch and Syria to Cyprus. They're on Cyprus. There for whatever length of time they were there. Uh, Salamis on the one end, you see where they began. Now, it's over 100 miles to the other end of the island where Paphos is, which is the capital. So they must have preached all along, whatever villages, whatever towns. Luke doesn't give us those specific details. When they get to Paphos, the governor there wants to hear the word of God. There is their Elemis, this sorcerer who tries to keep that from happening. And Paul turns to him and says, blindness is going to fall. God's hand is all on you, negative way. And the blindness will come on you, it seems, for a season. Paul related to that so well because... On the road to Damascus, he was struck blind for a number of days. He understands how that can make an impression. And uh, after that, the governor's amazed at uh, the doctrine that they preached. You know, the, the miraculous just supported the doctrine. The, the, through the book of Acts, it's always the miraculous bearing witness to the word. Too much of the church today has the word trying to bear witness to charismania, whatever it is that's going on sometimes. So there, in that end of the island, Luke wants to bring us to the point there where this governor then of Cyprus has come to the Lord. It's a huge island, huge effect. In fact, um, we're going to follow them and as they go to Asia Minor there, Cappadocia, the whole area, which is Galatia proper, the history tells us that the governor that we read about here, Sergius Paulus, Lucius Sergius Paulus, will take up residence in Antioch of Pisidia years after this. So um, interesting how history lines up with these things. We need to remember this was a reality. So it tells us then in... Verse 12, then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. 13 says, and when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So, after the deputy comes to Christ, Professor Ramsey tells us that Paul and Barnabas stayed in Cyprus probably from March through July before they then continue this trip. So there's a number of months that they're there in Paphos. You know, how many synagogues were there? How many people heard the gospel there? We don't know those details, but they were there for a season. So no doubt this governor got grounded as well as they were there. And if you'll notice in verse 13, it says this for the first time, Paul and his company. 
He was, it was always Barnabas first. Now Paul is the one who God gave the unction to perform this miracle on the sorcerer. It seems that he's taken the lead role now. So for the first time now, we hear of Paul and his company. When they loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they, they loose from Paphos here and they sail up to Perga in Pamphylia. You see Perga there, and from where the port is, it was still a five-mile trip up the, the river from here, Paphos, to uh, Perga, and then five miles up the river proper from the port to Perga. And that's about 150 miles by sea. And remember, they didn't have this is no motorboat. This is not a cruise line. Uh, this is depending on the wind every day, the prevailing winds. Uh, most of those who sailed this part of the Mediterranean world knew what time of the year was favorable to, to sail, which part wasn't, when there was greater dangers and so forth. And we'll read about that as we move on in the book of Acts. So however many days does it take to to sail 150 miles in a boat with a sail, um, I don't know. Uh, we're told in some of the historical records that the men that had boarded passage on these kind of boats, they would sleep out on the deck shoulder to shoulder. I mean, it wasn't like there was great compartments. You didn't have a bathroom with running water and a menu, and none of those things were going on. So that trip couldn't have gone fast enough for Paul and Barnabas, I'm sure. So they make this 100-mile journey from Paphos to Perga, which is in Pamphylia. And it says then at that point, John Mark, calls him John here, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Not to Antioch where they started. His mother's house is in Jerusalem. So he, we're, not, we're not told why he left. Uh, Paul is not happy about it. In chapter 15, it, uh, it does tell us this. It says, and when Barnabas was determined to take John, whose name was Mark, with them, they're going out on their second missionary journey, but Paul thought it not good to take him with them, who departed from them in Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them um, that they departed asunder, they divided one from the other. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus again, and Paul chose Silas, and he departed overland to go back to... So So Paul is so negative towards this young man at this point in time. He left them high and dry. We, we were here. He was their under rower. He was their servant. What is the reasons he left? You can read, you know, the, the, they go on ad nauseum, uh, is he mad that it's now Paul and Barnabas instead of Barnabas and Paul? The Paul's, it's Paul's company. He's taking the lead role. Barnabas was his uncle. He was, uh, he was nephew to Barnabas. Um, is it because we know in this um, part of the world at this point in time, uh, there was some uh, typhus that was going around, plus 
when you when you get to Perga, Pamphylia, you want up to to Antioch of Pisidia. Um, there's robbers. It was notorious for hardship and difficulty. Uh, is he afraid? Is he is he or is he just tired of seeing Gentiles saved? We're not told any of these things. He just leaves them for whatever reason. He left. Paul was bugged enough. He determined, I ain't taking this kid with me again. Whatever the next missionary journey comes, he ain't going with us, Barnabas. He's not going with us. But, of course, Barnabas, being the kind of a man that loves to restore and encourage people, was the perfect one to take him with him. And, of course, Mark, as time goes on, we hear of him in Colossians, and Paul says there as he's signing off, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. Wonderfully, Paul, at least by the time he writes Colossians, says, receive him. You've heard, if there's trouble, receive him. And then as we get to Paul's swan song, 2 Timothy, he's signing off his life and his ministry. He says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He's departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me. In the ministry. So we see this young guy bail out here in the book of Acts. If you've bailed out on something, or you have someone who has bailed out on you, don't go too hard on him, because the Lord was still at work in the life of this young man. He ends up being valuable to Paul. He ends up spending years with Peter. Peter was perfect for him because Peter had denied the Lord. And the rooster crowed, you know, Barnabas, I mean, you know, Mark, you think what you did is bad? Listen to me, you know. And then he ends up writing the gospel of Mark for us as well. So, look, we learn more in our failures and in our defeats than we do in our successes. That's just the way we are. Um, And I'm sure Mark learns in a wonderful way, to be more dependent on the Lord than he ever was. He realizes that in and of himself, certainly, he's not going to get anything accomplished. So at this point, we're just told in the record that he leaves. And he doesn't go back to Antioch. We don't know if he's embarrassed to go back to the church there where we started. It says he goes back to Jerusalem. That's where his, his mother's home was, we're told in Acts. So they loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. Interesting, we're not sure exactly what they encounter there. We're told in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, it says there, there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, Judeans, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia into Egypt. So on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, there were those there of Pamphylia. Um, When Paul and Barnabas move in that area, are they finding fellowships? Are they finding small groups of believers? We don't know. That's always encouraging to a missionary to get somewhere and find some believers there 
you know, we're used to what we're used to, which is not the norm. A missionary, if they sometimes baptize two people a year or four people a year, it's a huge deal for them, particularly if the culture is antagonistic. So here they go from Perga in Pamphylia. John Mark departs from them at this time. But, verse 14, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So they, then they leave from Perga and they come all the way up to this Antioch here. See, it's not the Antioch they left from. Perga to Antioch. And that's over 100 miles, okay? And they're not on a ship. That's 100 miles on foot. And it's from sea level to 3,600 feet above sea level. It's a 100-mile walk uphill. We're not sure how long that took. When Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, um, they're kind of going under the law, he says, he says, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. You have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh... I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. So Paul is in this journey from the boat, we don't know when he contracts this. We know there was Titus. The Roman records tell us in that part of the world, particular Perga, Pamphylia, he, it seems he picks up this disease. May have been one of the reasons they had the higher ground. And a uh, hundred miles, he's sick, uphill. What kind of condition he was, he says, but he says, you know how it was through infirmity of the flesh that I first preached the gospel to you. That's his first missionary journey. He doesn't say, you know, in spite of the fact I was sick, I toughed it out and I got there and I preached the gospel. He doesn't say that. He says, through infirmity of the flesh, because of my illness, that is what God used to bring me to you and it was because of that illness that you heard the gospel in the first place. Because there's all kinds of people around today still in the church that teach you if you're sick, it's because of lack of faith or there's sin in your life, you know, the blab it and grab it and so forth, you know, the, the doctrines that are around. And, and he says here very specifically in Galatians, and he's writing to those churches up in that area. There's not a particular church of Galatia, but... You've got the, the Iconium and Lystra and the churches in the area of Antioch. He said, you know how it was through infirmity of the flesh that I first came here. And my, I was so messed up. My eyes were so bad, pounding headaches. And sometimes, you know, it affected your eyesight and sometimes permanently. And we wonder because Paul will tell us, you can see this is signed in my own hand in some of his epistles. He has uh, someone writing for him as he dictates uh, but you can imagine what a mess he may have been by the time he, this is the great apostle. This is, you know, you, you know, Apollos was 
well-spoken. He was big. He was, you know, intelligent. Somebody, that's why some, like in Corinth, some places, well, we're of Apollos. We're not of the little, uh, ugly, eye-runny Chihuahua Paul, you know. Uh, You can imagine, this is the man carrying the message of Christ to the world. It's going to spread to Europe. It's going to spread to the United States. He's worn out. He's broken down. He's sick. He said, I know you'd have plucked out your own eyes if you could have and given them to me. He said, but it was because of that illness I ended up here. And I was able to preach the gospel to you. What a, what a soldier. You know, he was in a little body. He was a giant trapped in a little broken body. How remarkable. When they were departed from Perga, they came to Antioch, Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. I guess after hiking 100 miles uphill, that's what you do. They went in, they sat down, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, which was typical progress in the synagogue, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, You men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now you say that to Paul, and you're going to get it. You know, this, that's what Paul calls an open door. He says, pray there's an open door for me to share the mystery of Christ. Or he says it was an open door with many adversaries. Here the door opens up. You have to understand, these two wander into a synagogue up in this area. It's obvious that they're strangers, because in small communities, everybody knew who everyone was. These two guys come in. One of them is a Pharisee from the school of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Barnabas is a Levite from Jerusalem. The honor of having these two guys there in this Jewish community and in this synagogue is beyond what you and I really can appreciate. So as these men are there, they said, man, you got anything to share with us? We're so honored, Rabbi, you know, uh, Saul, Paul. They'd probably call him Saul there, still his Jewish name. And and Barnabas, anything to say unto us, say on. And you just think, how remarkable how this door opens up here when we see it. Now, verse 16, we begin to get the first sermon that Paul preaches in the book of Acts. Luke is able to get the the basis of it. You know, he's led by the Spirit, but he's an incredible chronologer and collector of information. And it's probably a sampling of what he preached in Iconium and Lystra and Derby and these other areas as well. And if you'll notice verse 16, he starts there, Men of Israel, ye that fear God. The next part of the sermon is verse 26. He says there, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham. And the final challenge is in verse 38 where he says, men and brethren. So each time he endears himself to them, men and brethren, you know, of the stock of Israel, children of Abraham. He goes through this men and brethren thing. So verse 16 down to verse 25, he covers historically, the coming of the Messiah, Israel's expectation, the fact that now he, he follows the same outline that Stephen uses. Well, Stephen's is much longer in Acts chapter 7. 
Paul stole everything he preached from Stephen. You know, as a guy preaching, his face is lit up like an angel. You know, you want to steal this guy's sermon, you know. Uh, again, you know, if if you steal from 12 guys, it's research. If you steal from one guy, it's plagiarism, you know, and they pick on you. You know, Paul stole so much from Stephen. And, and you can imagine he's saved now. He stood there and approved him being stoned. He must have thought over the things he said, you know, a thousand times. And it said when Stephen was finished, they gnashed their teeth and they ran upon him and they killed him. And it says Saul was there holding the garments and that he approved, which means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. So uh, here now he begins to speak. First recorded sermon. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, typical in the synagogue, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. Listen to what I have to say. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. He puts himself right in with them immediately. He chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm, he brought them out. So, you know, he's going to be concise, remarkable. In, in verse 17, he covers from Genesis 12 to Exodus 12. This people of Israel, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he takes them in one verse from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the Exodus you know, and and Stephen did something very similar. Now it's been 14 years since Stephen preached and was stoned to death. Paul's holding on to so much of this. Then he says in verse 18, and about the time 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. Now he takes us from Exodus to Deuteronomy. 40 years he dealt with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their lot to them, the land to them by lot. So verse 19 is the whole book of Joshua. Now the Jews that are listening are familiar with all of this. It's very interesting that it says here that he divided to them the land. Because you listen to Jacob on his deathbed. I, I love to go through the Bible or even in history to hear the last words of what people say. And Jacob's one of those remarkable. He's on his deathbed and he props himself up on his staff. And he prophesies over his 12 sons. Says some very remarkable things to each tribe. Then... Much later, 440, 450 years later, when they come into the promised land, they drive out these seven nations and so forth, it says here, then he, should be a capital H, God divides the, the land unto them by lot. So when you get into Canaan, they cast lots for the land to divide it up amongst the tribes and it falls out. Each tribe gets the portion that Jacob described over 400 years before that on his deathbed. So the dice are loaded. You know, the, the, at this point in time, you know, the, the Urim and Thummim are not there yet. So, you know, the, they're, they're, they're doing this by lot, trusting that 
the Lord is going to lead them how these lots should fall out. Uh, again, the beginning of Acts is the last time we hear about it. They cast lots to see if it fell on Matthias and so forth. They trusted that. They believed God was sovereign. They believed God would lead. They, they didn't know how. And if the Urim and Thummim wasn't there when it, it was somewhere, we don't know it was, but if it wasn't there when Jacob, when uh, Joshua did this to decide how the land was divided, they trusted the lots would fall out the way that they should. It's it's that way in our lives. The the lot has fallen out to us, and you watch that in in. Uh, the Old Testament, you watch it in the Judges, you have the tribe of Dan jealous over other. They're not content to be where their lot fell out, down in the area where Samson was in the south. And they leave and they go north up to Laish and they take over the city. And then the land becomes Dan to Beersheba, Dan in the north, Beersheba in the south. But Dan was originally in the south. They head to the north, and then Dan becomes the place where the golden calf is because they're idolatrous. And their first idolatry was not wanting what God had allowed to fall out to them, but wanting what God had done in someone else's life, in someone else's tribe. And we need to be careful. We can do that. We can look at someone else's calling, someone else's ministry, someone else's family, someone else's wealth, someone else's marriage, or whatever, and say, well, this, you know, the, the lot didn't fall out to me like this. You know, I got the rotten end of the stick or something like that. You know, look, you, you follow these tribes. Some of them received, you know, mountains with valleys and streams. Some of them, these big expanses where there are orchards and everything end up. Some of them, desert areas. But they had remarkable things happen there. You know, I, I look at Johnny Erickson sometime and I think, you know, she's been here with us several times. I'm always amazed at her. She's in that wheelchair. Now she's had cancer. And you think, this, this is the lot that fell out to her. But, you know, you talk with her and you realize she didn't sit around in that wheelchair crippled. She was crippled when she was like 17 years old, broke her neck diving. She didn't sit around and say, I'm sitting, I'm bitter at God. I can't believe. She said, this is my lot. I've heard her say, I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing the Lord than walking on my two feet and not knowing him. She's opened up at Billy Graham Crusade. She's written books. She's touched the whole world from that wheelchair. Because the desert portion that fell out to her, instead of coveting what other people had, she sat before the Lord with her lot. And he's taken it and he's done incredible things with it all over the world, all over the world. So the lots fell out exactly the way Jacob described them hundreds of years earlier. And he confirms that here. He says, he, the Lord, divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave them unto them judges about the space of 450 years up to Samuel. From judges then to 1 Samuel, he covers in a sentence. And he said, and afterwards they desired a king. They were to be a theocracy, but they would become a monarchy. 
And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, King James says son of Kis, it's son of Cush, we know from the Old Testament, it's a different way to write it there, no doubt from the Greek, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And no doubt Saul knew much about this first king of Israel because he was named after him. And... uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, he would say, circumcised on the eighth day, and no doubt he knew a great, great deal about the psalm. Head and shoulders above everybody else, I'm sure he envied that. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, as a short guy, he must have, met, you know, uh, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. God had told him in the book of Deuteronomy, look, when you come into the land, it was prophetic. And he said, and you get in there, and you desire a king like the other nations around you. That was not his plan. His plan was to rule the nation from the tabernacle, through the priests and so forth, and prophets. He said, but when you get in there and you decide you want a king like the other nations around you, don't you dare pick a foreigner. The king has to be one of your own brethren. And when you take that man and you put that man on the throne... I don't want him going back to Egypt after horses. I don't want him hoarding gold and silver. I don't want him to have many wives. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Throughout the Bible, that's the takedown. And that's Satan's best shot. You're the son of God. Since you're the son of God, turn this turn these stones into bread. Lust of the flesh. Takes them up, shows them all of the kingdoms of the world. You vow not to worship me, I'll give them lust of the eyes. Cast yourself down. It's written of you that will send his angels and bear you up. Everybody, pride of life. Interesting. God says when you, when you do take a king, don't let him do these things. Many wives, lust of the flesh. Pride of life, horses from Egypt, you know, all the gold and the silver and so forth. He, he says, don't let that happen, but rather sit him down and let him take a quill and write for himself a copy of this law. The king was supposed to sit down himself, write out the Torah, if you can imagine And it said that he wouldn't be puffed up, and then he would live by that. So Saul, of course, ends up puffed up. He he rebels against the Lord to where David has says, you know, uh, that rebellion is like witchcraft and stubbornness is like idolatry and so forth. But here he says Saul was there for 40 years over the nation. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them... David to be their king, who that's another 40 years, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And I always think in some of his own, too, no doubt. Um, David, a man after God's own heart. You know, he'll say to Solomon in First uh, Kings 11:4, I think it is. He says, "To your heart is not perfect towards me, like the heart of your father David, because you've given yourself to foreign gods and so forth." And you think David was an adulterer and a murderer, 
And God says to Solomon, your heart's not perfect towards me like the heart of your father David. And in his context is you've you've given you've let your wives build these temples, you've given yourself to idolatry, you've allowed it in the land. And the idea is God's saying, Look, yeah, David messed up. But when he messed up, he didn't change God's. When he messed up, he groveled before me. When he messed up, he repented before me. When he did things wrong, he bowed before me. And in that context, his heart was continuous toward me. It was perfect. And he said to Solomon, but your heart is not perfect like the heart of your father David. And here, interesting, Paul mentions that. According, He says he was a man after God's own heart. Not perfect, but a man after God's own heart. And he said, and of this man's seed, he's talking to the Jews in the synagogue, they all knew the Messiah would be of the tribe of Judah, that he would sit on his father's or David's throne. That was all part of what they believed and they embraced. He says, and of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised up unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. So he takes us then from 1 Kings to the present in a sentence. Um, so he's covered a lot of territory from Abraham to Jesus in a number of sentences here. He's, he's poignant. He's getting to the, the truth of what he wants to say to them. And he says, and it's ended up to be this Savior, Jesus. Now, no doubt they had heard. Some of them had been at Jerusalem during the Passover, uh, during Pentecost, and, and when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Some of them heard these people, these fishermen from Galilee, speaking of the, the great doings of God, giving God the glory in their own language. And he says here, now, this is who it is. This is the Savior, Jesus. And when John, John the Baptist, had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to lose. So they no doubt had heard about John the Baptist. They, this, is, this is all something they could kind of embrace this in a context, the things that he's saying. This is the history of it. This is how it's happened out. And this greatest of prophets, God said, greatest born among women, John the Baptist, remember he said, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to lose his shoe. It's very interesting because they found, archaeologists found an etching from Rabbi Joshua ben Levi, and what he said was all manner of service that a slave renders to his master must a pupil render to his teacher except that of taking off his shoes. Uh, that was considered so low a visit, the lowest slave of the house would be the one who would take off the shoes. And John the Baptist said, I ain't even there. You know, people think I'm the greatest prophet. I'm the one, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. And I'm not even worthy to be the lowest servant in the house that takes off his shoes. So he brings us there, the history. 
Now in verse 26, he's going to start to talk about the rejection of that and warn them. Make sure you guys don't do the same thing. You think Jerusalem is more spiritual? That's why you let us speak? Well, this is what the guys in Jerusalem did. Don't think they're more spiritual. They missed the boat on this whole thing. So men and brethren, again, now he talks to them, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, they were the proselytes, the God-fearers, the Gentiles that are there, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Now look, when we go through this, you're going to notice the word here in verse 26. You're going to notice the word um, in verse 44, the word in verse 46, the word in verse, verse 48, the word in verse 49. The word is the center of what Paul is teaching, preaching here, and he's specific here about the word of salvation, he says. He says, you children of Abraham, the Jews, whosoever feareth God, the Gentiles, to you is the word of this salvation sent. That's what I'm doing here. This is not a mistake. We're here together today. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew not, they didn't know him, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled those words in condemning him. So isn't it interesting? He said, don't think the guys at Jerusalem are head and shoulders above you. These guys missed the boat completely. He said, he said they didn't understand that the one who had came was the very one that would be there. They, they didn't know. They didn't listen to the voices of the prophets, which were abundantly clear about him, which they read every Sabbath so they could read the word regular, not understand it. They have fulfilled the words of the prophets in condemning him, he says. And though they found no cause of death in him, Yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, isn't it interesting? They took him down from the tree. Judaism would speak about in Deuteronomy about cursed is he that hangs on a tree and so forth. And they laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from, now, it talks in verse 22 about God raising up David. There's place where, and the idea there is he brought him, he raised up to Israel's Savior, verse 23, brought him to them. Now it says God raised him from Ek, out from among the dead. There's a different emphasis in, in regards to what God is doing. God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them. We know for 40 days, imagine, sitting with them, talking with them, spending time with them. At one point, he's seen of over 500, no doubt, the people in Galilee, lepers that had been cleansed, the woman with a blood flow for 12 years, a man that had been let down through the roof by his friends and so forth. He was seen of them many days, which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. This is what's going on in Jerusalem now. And we declare unto you good news, glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us. He includes himself, their children, in that he raised up 
Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The context here is resurrection, certainly. Uh, there are other angles. It's a, it's a millennial psalm, but he puts it in the context of this day, you know, have I begotten, it's a perfect tense, and I've begotten you, and you are still the begotten of the Father, is the idea. And as concerning that, he raised him up from the dead. Concerning that verse, he raised him from the dead. Now, no more to return to corruption. He said, that in this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. It's wonderful to have those, by the way. Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Now, it's very interesting, at least to me, if you go back to the second chapter, it says there, when Peter does this, he says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, nor suffer thy holy one to see corruption. He's quoting David in the first part of it. Thou wilt not abandon my soul to hell. Jesus said to the thief, Today you'll be with me in paradise. doesn't say he was abandoned to hell. Um, the original Apostles' Creed for over the first 200 years as it came together was crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead, buried, rose again on the third day. At the end of the second into the third century when it was reworked, they said crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead, buried, descended into hell and rose again on the third. Never in the original Apostles' Creed. Um, so here it says... Paul just quotes the second half of it and says that he would not suffer his Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, passed away. Believers fall asleep, they don't die. And was laid unto his fathers, and he saw corruption. So it wasn't talking about him but he whom God raised again saw no corruption. I think it's interesting if you look there in, uh, in verse 36. It says, David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God. Isn't that interesting? First of all, you can't serve any other generation but the generation you're in. It's not like you have a choice, you know. Uh, we always hear about the, the next generation. No, no, we're in a generation. If you're alive today and you're breathing and you're anywhere from one to a hundred, this is the generation we're serving, not just the young part of it, not just the old part of it. David served his own generation, and he did it by the will of God. He did it by the will of this imperfect man, this guy. You know, he had nine wives already when he hooked up with Bathsheba, another man's wife. You know, committed murder, killed him, you know, child with Bathsheba, the first one dies, and then his, his repentance and so forth, and Solomon's born. But, you know, David was not a perfect man. His family was a disaster. After Talk about scary families. 
you know, David was never the father or the king he was before he messed up because his kids had little respect for him. The kingdom was marred because of his behavior. He was never the king or the father that he was before his compromise and his sin. But he was a much greater psalmist. And the thing that most of us receive, that we receive from David that we love so much are the songs that he wrote, the psalms. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, as he's about to sign off, he doesn't call himself the king of Israel. He doesn't call himself the giant slayer. He says, I'm one that God raised up from the flocks. He says, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And it says there he picks up his harp, and it seems like he writes his last song there. So this is a man who served his own generation by the will of God. Perfectly no. He made major mistakes. I'm not saying you should go out and kill somebody and not worry about it and you can still do it. No. You know, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, which David didn't have, but he loved the Lord. He was a man after God's heart, which we should be in the day. And the only way we can serve our own generation, first of all, it's the only generation we can serve, it's by the will of God. You ain't going to do it with your wisdom. You ain't going to do it in your own strength. You ain't going to do it with smoke machines or lasers, even though I have a laser tonight. Um, the, the only way we're going to do that is by the will of God, by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, Jim Simula is a friend. Jim Simula said the church never moves forward unless it falls back. The church only moves forward when it falls back on the word of God and the Holy Spirit. When the church falls back on those things, it moves forward, you know. And uh, here, what a great picture Paul has drawn of Christ coming, fulfilling the Scripture, then Christ being rejected and filling the Scripture, and then in verse 38, he comes to his challenge. He, this is where he's getting. He's going to preach for a verdict here. He says, Be it known unto you, therefore... Don't be like the knuckleheads in Jerusalem. Be it known unto you, therefore, again, he addresses the men and brethren, that through this man, by means of this man, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. That's the message of Christianity. He says, there is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and look at this, and by him... All that believe are justified. You have all twice there in verse 39. You should circle both of them. All that believe are justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He said, I understand this. He said, it's through this one. This is the Passover lamb. This is the one who died on the Passover. It is through him that there's forgiveness of sins. This is the central message. This is the good news he's bringing through him, remarkably. Again, when we get there in the Sunday morning Gospel of John, remarkable records um, about the celebration of the Passover in Jesus' day and how they would take a lamb and put a skewer through its shoulders and tie its arms to it and tie the back legs to the skewer they jammed down the throat and came out the, the buttocks without breaking a bone so they could then turn that on the spit. And uh, early rabbis Josephus said there were thousands of lambs crucified 
on the Passover. That became the means, the way it was taken home and put on the fire and cooked that night at the Seder. He says it's through him. He's the Passover. He's the one that fulfilled it all. He's the one that did this. And he said, men and brethren, you need to know that it's through this man that preached unto you today, you're hearing this, and it's about the forgiveness of sins. That's our central message. It's not Republican. It's not Democrat. It's not white. It's not black. It's not vaxxed. It's not unvaxxed. Okay? It's the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. When we see the scene in heaven, standing around the throne of God, where, where is the lamb, it says, with the marks of slaughter upon him, are people from every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every tribe, every race in the world, saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain and has redeemed us unto God by his blood and made us kings and priests and so forth. This is the central message, Paul says. Look, and there was more prejudice then than there is now. You know, the Jews thought the Gentiles were fuel for the fires of hell. They called them goyim, dogs. And they despised them. And here you have the, the, the Jews gather in the synagogue, and because it's in Gentile territory, it seems like there's a number of those who, are, who fear God, which they, they, the proselytes, they call them that, so there's Gentiles there. And in the middle of all that, he's saying, through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. More importantly now, and this is the first time Paul uses this word, and by him... All that believe are justified. He's talking about his deity there. Look, justified. Um, Forgiveness and justification are two different things. Forgiveness is all the sins you've committed are forgiven. Justification, though you can break it down into just as if justification is that it's just as though those sins have never happened. They're not only forgiven. You and I, Paul tells us in Romans, all have sinned. And and the tenses are, and are continually coming short of the glory of God. Talking about all y'all. Me too, but all y'all. All have sinned and continually come short of the glory of God, he says. And then he talks there about the, the way that we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're justified, and that there's propitiation. He takes you into these words. You know, so so yes, we have forgiveness of sins through Christ, but we have something beyond that, and that is justification. Not only has God, you know, rubbed out our past, he secured our future. It isn't just our sins are forgiven but he's granted to us justification. And we live our lives now in our failings, in our strengths, and so forth. We live our lives now. There is no record of our sins. Past, present, and future. Justification. And the fact that he can do that speaks of his deity. You know, the, the famous story, and I, I probably told this before, but I like to tell it so you'll hear it again. Famous story in regards to justification is a wealthy man that had purchased a Rolls Royce, had it shipped over to France, 
and he was on vacation. He was driving up this road, and the Rolls-Royce broke down. And he had to get somebody to the closest hotel, Morse code. They had to, they had to send code to England to the Rolls-Royce factory, and a team came from England to the Rolls-Royce, and they fixed it on the side of the road. And the guy goes on, you know, and, and by the time he gets back to England, it's been months and months and months, so he goes to the factory and said, you know, I never received a bill. They said, what are you talking about? He said, you know, I, I bought this Rolls, and, and I was in France, and uh, it broke down, and you sent a team there and fixed it. And the guy said, well, let me look into it. And he disappeared for a while, and he came back, and he said, sir, I'm sorry. There is no record that any Rolls Royce has ever broken down anywhere. <laughs> and that's justification. That's you and I. There is no record. There is no record. It says, our sins and our iniquities, he will remember no more. It doesn't say he'll forget. He can't forget he's God. But he can choose not to remember. And because that's through Christ, we receive justification. Not only, you know, I've been at Golgotha many times. And I look up and I think that that cross was there. You hanging there. And 2,000 years ago, all of my sin was there. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of my sin, past, present, and future. He knows my sin better than I know it. I go along, make mistakes, I, I, I mess something up, and I'm surprised. I can't believe it. He's not surprised. He knows the end from the beginning. He doesn't feel like he got a lemon 1950, that's a bad model, you know. There's none of that. There's no record that there's ever been a sin in my life. Ever. Past, present, or future. That's justification. And Paul, look, he needed to work on that word. Because he had made havoc of the church. He's the antichrist of the book of Acts. He was murdering people, making them blaspheme the name of Jesus at the point of a sword, hailing them off to prison. You know, and here he is saying, it's, none of that is on record. It isn't just that I'm forgiven. My, my record is slate, is clean. And it stays clean when I make a mistake. As I move forward, it stays clean. You know, we're going to see him in the, amongst the, the, the Sanhedrin, and one of the priests smacks him in the face. And Paul says, God's going to smack you, you whitewashed tomb. You know, it says, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. You're supposed to go the extra mile. Paul's like us. He's in the flesh. He's there dying in Rome in the, in the, in the prison there. And uh, he says to Luke, you know, we read it, you know, Demas has forsaken me, Cretans has gone here, and I'm alone. Uh, when you come, bring John Mark, you know, and, and bring the scrolls, bring the parchments. My cloak is there. It's cold here in prison. And that Alexander the coppersmith, God's going to deal with him, you know. So Paul's got that attitude through his life that needed to be sanctified, but there was no record of it in heaven. There's a record of it in the Bible. The whole world knows about it, but God don't know about it in heaven, all right? These are the great words of the gospel. This is the first sample of Paul's preaching. And he, oh, he's bringing them around to this. 
that through Jesus there's the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified, again, look, from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. There's something in the gospel that the law could never provide. The law in the sacrifice of an animal could provide a temporary, you know, forgiveness, a passing over sin, looking forward to the Messiah that was to come. But there's no religious system on the planet that can provide justification. There's not a religious system in the world that can take your life and shake it off and remove the record of anything you've ever done or you ever will do and present you faultless before the throne of God with exceeding joy. There's not a system in the world that can do that. But you can go home tonight and sit alone with your Savior who loves you. And we spend our whole life learning that, growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I, I you know I remember the kids at home saying, Lord, you love me more than I love them. That's what I want to know. Keep miracles, keep deliverance. If I can live and breathe and know that you love me more than I love them, Lord, I want to I want to camp. I want to pitch my tent there. That's where I want to be, Lord. And it's in the preaching, you know, this, this man who had been a murderer and a blasphemer, he says, you know, this is the one. He justifies us from all things from which the, the, we could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore. Here's the warning. Here, you have the good news. Then beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers. Wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And he goes back to Habakkuk, and he said, if, if I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe it. And he says, don't be in that category. The warning, here's the offer, forgiveness of sins. Tonight, if you're here and you're a sinner, doesn't matter what you've done. I, I once in a while get a letter from David Berkowitz. We've written back and forth. I used to listen on the radio. Now he's in a prison where he doesn't get it. Um, son of Sam. How many young ladies did he did he kill? All of New York was buying dye because he was killing blondes. You couldn't find any, you know, dye anywhere in New York City. And he's come to know Christ. And he said, Joe, I, I belong here. I'll be here for the rest of my life. And there's families out there that hate me because I took their daughters. And I can help the warden with the, the autistic criminals and the ones that have learning disabilities, and I get to serve. Everything he did is gone. And there are people who would get mad, and I understand, if they heard that because of how great their loss was. But Paul the Apostle slaughtered people. He held them to prison. And there were those who had to hear, this man is now serving Christ. He's now talking about forgiveness and justification. And there were people, oh, dare, you know, you know, it was the same thing there. Paul says, look, don't make this mistake. 
God's people in the past have been promised things. They weren't able to embrace them. Don't be like them. The goddess to say, you know, you, uh, you, you, they wouldn't believe. If I told them what I was going to do, they wouldn't have believed it. And here we sit this evening. How far are we from the trumpet blowing? How far are we right now from Christ coming? And you need to believe this. When that happens, we're going to stand in his presence without a smudge, without a stain, without a wrinkle. We're going to stand there justified. Nothing, no record. Looking at a lamb with the marks of slaughter upon him. The only man-made thing in heaven, those marks. Knowing. And in the ages to come, still amazed that he bore that. Those standing around the throne, not a single issue. No record of anything ever done wrong. Non-existent. And if you don't know Christ, that's the challenge tonight. Forgiveness of sins, the gospel. Christ died on the cross. But it's more than that. There's justification. God accepted that payment. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. The fact that he miraculously rose from the dead tells us God Almighty accepted his payment on the cross. And for you and I tonight, we don't have to bear it anymore. We might have done terrible things, stupid things. I do stupid things every day. But the point is, we don't have to bear them. It doesn't have to send us to the psychiatrist. It doesn't have to, to kill us. I'm not, there are times professionals are helped. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying those shouldn't be the things that destroy us. And as God's children, you know, I, I think I would be so heartbroken if one of my daughters, one of my sons, when they were younger, would have groveled before me. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Oh, God. You know, Dad, I'm not worthy. It says if you don't receive the kingdom as a child, you'll never enter. They they thought they deserved the refrigerator and the gas bill paid and the electric bill paid. They never groveled and said, I'm not worthy. They said, turn up the heat. Turn up the refrigerator. Or open the refrigerator full of food. Ah, there ain't nothing to eat. And shut it again. You know, just... You know, and you you love them. That relationship is there. It's remarkable. He loves us more. He loves us more. And our record is gone. Record? What's that mean? In heaven they're going to say, record? What's that word mean? Right? Aren't you glad? Let's stand and sing then. Let's, let's praise this one. And if you don't know him tonight, please come up after us. We'd love to pray with you, give you a copy of Scripture. If you're tortured in the world we're living in, you don't know what the future holds. You're not going to know what the future holds till you know who holds the future. Once you know that, you're going to be good. And he's made a way for you to come with all of your sin. Someone else has paid the price. And you can come to him, and the whole record is gone. It's gone. Father, I know you've overheard. Lord, we look into these things. We're amazed at them, Lord. You speak to our hearts, and we're so reticent, Lord. The, the, the earthly love we've grown up around has not been perfect, Lord. We thank you for family and friends. We thank you for spouses, for kids, for parents, but all of that marred in some way or another, Lord, and, and sometimes there's been a sense of hurt or 
And, and Lord, we, we try to judge your love on that scale, Lord, and it isn't anything that can ever go there. So teach us in faith, Father. Teach us in faith, Father. Teach me. Teach us anew. Teach us every day that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Let that be realer and realer to us, Father, by the work of your Spirit, by your word rising off the page and his power. And we ask, we ask, Lord. None of it's in our own toolbox. We ask. And Jesus told us when he walked among us, it was your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. We pray in your name. Amen.